Because Money was originally recorded as a video podcast, so there may be visuals that don't carry through to this audio-only version. Please visit becausemoney.ca to see the show notes, related links, and more. Um, so I've seen tons of articles along the lines of five things to do before buying your first house. Not one of them says, check what's up there for rent. See if you should be buying. It should be in there. It should be one of them. I call it step zero because I think it should be first because it saves you a lot of their headache but um and because everyone else is like here's one two three four five sometimes ten yeah but never that which is you know the implied step zero you know sandy always talks about that like clarity ownership all that stuff i feel like step zero is where a lot of ownership happens weirdly ownership happens much before you own a house maybe something (laughs) well you gotta own the problem Hello, my friends. My name is Chris Entz, and welcome to another episode of Because Money. This week marks only the third time that we've ever done an episode without the iridescent Sandy Martin, but I promise you, we've still got a good show for you. I will be joined by our resident housing bear, John Robertson, to talk about the ultimate housing question. Should you be renting or should you be buying? We talk about tangibles and intangibles and just how to think about the whole problem of where you should live. I hope you enjoy sitting in on our conversation. This is the, I think the whole idea of step zero and the whole idea of having this conversation is that you always get born down in kind of what feels like just the weeds of, but maybe this, but maybe this. And it's just like, where do you, where do you start? Where do you kind of have like that idea of should? That kind of, that idea of right, that should. So like, if you're framing the question for somebody, should I even look at buying real estate? Like, where does that decision start for you? Like, how do you think about that? Or how do you wish people would think about it? Or how would you think about it? Or any of those things? Well, the the thing that I come to or start from is the old expression, you have to live somewhere. Yeah. Now, for a lot of people, that is a dangerous expression because they use it to justify buying a house at any price because you have to live somewhere. <laughs> like the only place you could live is in a house that you buy. But no, no. Take it at face value for what it is. You have to live somewhere, yeah. which means you're either renting a place yeah. or you're buying a place. Yeah. And that place could be a condo. It could be an apartment. It could be a house, duplex, trailer. Um, it could be in a big city like Toronto, yeah. or you could say, well, you know, cost of living here is so much that even if I take a pay cut and move out to another city, I'm still going to have a better life because I won't be paying this much for a house and I won't be commuting. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> and- commuting is not fun. Do you think anybody thinks commuting is fun? Like if there's any, like one guy's like, I love my commute. There probably no, I mean, one guy who's like, I don't I just I don't drive downtown and I learn languages. And it's amazing. And I do I do car crunches. Are car crunches a thing? Probably not. Yeah. I mean, I read a lot on the subway. Yeah. I've got my Kobo and I, I read a lot. I like reading. I don't like reading on the subway. <laughs> I'd much rather be at home <laughs> with a five minute walk and then reading in my armchair on my couch yeah. rather than being forced to spend two hours every weekday reading yeah. on the subway as there, much as i like reading it's there's the still making not... the best of a situation 
and there's the, yes. like, like it's just it's the framing. I would say that there is a third option to year after year. You have to live somewhere. There's the renting, and then there's the buying, and then there's the freeloading option. It's an excellent <laughs> yes, option. Let's true. not take it off the table. Yeah. And I'm not just talking yeah. about you know millennials in their 20s or whatever age group is going through their 20s at this at whatever at whatever era um living on their parents basements but just also people that are jumping from friend's couch to friend's couch people that are doing all kinds of fun things to um creatively solve the problem of a place to live (laughs) without the struggle of money there was actually on uh, i think it was reddit a couple of weeks ago an interesting thread where that was sort of the guy's main problem he's like you know i live in my parents with my parents and i'm totally fine with them i don't have like you know big concerns living with them and and interpersonal friction but i like going out and they don't live very close to downtown which means you know most weekends i'm couch surfing and i hate it so i'm gonna buy a condo downtown and it's like whoa there are other options (laughs) yes exactly And it's like, you know, look at how much a condo costs. Like if you're okay otherwise living in your parents' place and it's close to your work and all these other great factors, I mean, I moved out of my parents' place at 22 in part because I went off to university in part because I was ready to move out of my parents' place. (laughs) I was done sharing a roof with them. And lots of other people sometime in their (laughs) mid-20s hit about the same point where like, like, nope, I'm out. But if this guy is totally fine living with his parents, it's a very economical, cheap way to live. Totally. And then if his only problem is that on the weekends he's couch surfing and that's inconvenient and he doesn't like it, I mean, a hotel room a couple times a month is a lot cheaper than a condo. Seriously. And it might be more fun. It's super fun. If you're just yeah. looking for a place to crash, done. Yeah. yeah. Somehow so. that never makes the blog list, though. No. <laughs> Before well, that, that's, you buy, that's a unique situation. Consider but. a hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a place to start. But yeah, so I I do accept your premise of you need a place to live. Totally place accept to that premise. <laughs> exactly. It. So you need a place to live, and so you start by looking what's out there for rent, what's out there to buy, and another common stumbling block is people think well, renting equals one or two bedroom apartment. Yeah. Especially and, in a city like Toronto. Like, yes. Although I think that that's across the board in a city, because you think about renting as a phase of life. This is this kind of idea that's like renting is something you do from your 20s, maybe into your 30s, when you would function well in a one or two bedroom apartment. And so even uh, renting later in life becomes a conversation about could you raise a family in a one bedroom apartment? You know? Yeah. Which is interesting. It's like renting as an idea really isn't, and I'm probably jumping ahead in kind of how you're thinking about things anyways, but it's interesting to be like that when you say people think about it being a one or two bedroom apartment, that totally seems true because that's the people who rent. People rent one or two bedroom apartments. And most rentals are one or two bedroom apartments or equivalently condos that are functioning as one or two bedroom apartments. Yeah. But there are houses for rent, and, and people don't even think that that's an option. Yeah, You can go out and find in lots of great neighborhoods with great schools, full detached houses, exactly like the ones that you might have grown up with your parents. It's exactly like the ones to your left and to your right that are owned by the owners. 
that for whatever reason people are renting out it's either an income property for a landlord yeah. it's a speculative bet on the housing market that they just need to fill to um cover some of the ongoing operating costs totally. until they can flip it uh, or it's a, you know someone was living in that house and then they got transferred for work and they didn't want to sell it yeah and then they let you live there for a couple of years until maybe they come back or maybe they realize that now it's just a place where the tenants live because they're not coming back yeah yeah totally i guess when i think about that immediately i feel and i actually like even though i've been a renter for a long time rarely have i looked at prices for detached houses because i feel like the cost would be prohibitive i feel like there wouldn't be a lot and that they would be super expensive and I don't know why. Maybe that's not true. And obviously, well, we're, I'm speaking from a Toronto because that's where I've been looking lately from the idea of renting in Toronto, which is expensive anyways. But like, it's all relative, right? That it would be super expensive for compared to what I could get somewhere else. Yes, it is. And I look at the detached market a lot because I live in a detached house and I'm never going back to sharing a wall with someone as long as I can reasonably afford not to. Um, yeah, my neighbor plays weird. I hate music. neighbors. Just... He's right through this wall here. And uh, it's everything from really old classical music where you hear a weird vibrato and it's like loud old movie. It's just weird. And he starts listening to it around 9 p.m. through 11.30 to 1.30 p.m. Doesn't listen to it at any other time. Super loud. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't matter what the specifics are for me. Just knowing that there's another person that close to me just gets my skin crawling. I just like, no, I need physically need the space of buffer between me and other human beings. Totally. I don't know why I live in a city. I really should be out in a country <laughs> somewhere, but um, that, that's just where I am. So I, I rent a detached house yeah. and have for several years rented a detached house and if i ever move i will probably move into another detached house likely another one that i will rent yeah um so that is an option and yes it is expensive it's going to be more expensive than a one-bedroom apartment of or two-bedroom apartment because it's just more space but exactly buying a house is more expensive than buying a one-bedroom condo or a two-bedroom condo yeah uh What's really surprising, though, is that in Toronto, that difference grows faster when you're looking to buy the place. And that's where the really big rent versus buy differences start to come in play. Okay, so break that down for me a little bit, because that's where I kind of lose, or maybe my brain starts to get a little fuzzy, because it's just like, it feels like, when, when we've talked about this before, too, it, it feels like there's, you talk about the rent versus buy equation, and mm -hmm. and like there's some kind of secret thing that you can plug in that will give you the right answer for whether at least the financial right answer and there's other things to kind of consider about whether it's worth it to buy or rent so like is there is that a thing so yes and no okay so it's not the answer it's the cloud of answers because unfortunately this is another one of those situations where there's uncertainty in real life okay and this depends on a number of factors and assumptions, a lot of which you can get really close on. Um, for instance, you'd know what the rent of a place is because you can look up the listing yeah. and you know what the equivalent place would be to buy because you can look up the listings yeah. for those. And in some cases, they're the same place because someone needs to move out of their house and they don't care whether they rent it or sell it. They just need to get out themselves. Yeah. And sometimes you'll find that that will be a dual listing 
rent or buy. Mm-hmm. So you can compare like directly the exact same place. Here's how much for rent. Here's how much to buy. Oh, that's really interesting. And that gives you like a really good insight into how the rental market is in your city. If you can find rent listings like that. Um, yeah. cause then it's exactly apples to apples. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the first thing is that there's going to be a little bit of uncertainty. You're going to have to make some predictions and you're going to look at how the future playing out in different ways might affect you. So you might not look, just look at one set of numbers to get one answer, but to get sort of a range of answers and then say, well, yes, if prices keep going up 20% per year in Toronto, then yeah, well. Yeah, I'd be better off buying, but really how realistic is that? And if prices stay flat or even go down, I'd be a lot worse off buying. And then you can make your decision based on that. So you can look at that. You can take your sort of baseline set of uh, assumptions and then see what the difference is financially. Uh, So for instance, if I look at a detached house in Toronto these days, uh, it might be a million and a half dollars to buy like a three yeah. bedroom. Depending on where you're house. looking at, right? Not even downtown. I'm talking like. Oh, no, that's North not downtown. Yeah. That's, it, it maybe was six years ago or something like that, but it's not really downtown anymore. Yeah. And to rent pretty much the same place might be 3000 3, $4,000 a month. I'm going to go with 3600 because I found a couple of listings right at that price point okay. uh, last time I looked. So 3600 to rent. 1.5 million to buy. 1.5 million to buy. Okay. So yeah, that rent is pretty expensive, especially yeah. if you're comparing to, you know, a basement apartment somewhere, totally. um, you know, $800 a month basement apartment in Scarborough or yeah. $1,500 for a one bedroom condo downtown totally. or whatever. That's a lot of money, but 1.5 million is a lot of money too. It's, it's true, but it's weirdly, it's so much of a different conception mentally. You know what I mean? Like, 1.5 million is a is an a really like my mind can't really wrap around my mind around that. But when you're talking about thirty six hundred dollars a month, I go, oh, I couldn't. I just don't know how that would work. And like because I have a way better conception of how that would actually kind of affect me. So yeah. So the first thing people to do that to try to make it comparable. Yeah. Yeah. They'll they'll look at the monthly. Yeah. And so they go, oh well, I'll put this much down on the house. And then what's my monthly mortgage payment? And that's yeah. the really naive rent versus buy, the, the wrong way to do it. Okay. Uh, but even then, mortgage payment, assuming 2.5% on your mortgage that you're putting 20% down, is $5,376 a month. So even with the super naive way to ignore all the other costs of homeownerships, the risk assumed, all the other stuff, the fact that interest rates at 2.5 is probably not something that's going to happen at all you're still looking at a huge difference. You said, yeah. what was it, 5,000? 5,375, 76 okay. up uh, versus 3,600. So not quite $2,000, $2,000 difference, but in that range, almost $2,000 yeah. difference. Yeah. And, okay, that's, and that's huge. No property taxes, no maintenance. Yeah. Now, to be fair, you're building equity, but we'll get to that later. For sure. Like, that's yeah. the kind of... It's you have to think about it in little pieces here. So yeah. I will totally afford you that time before I yeah. raise so, food. So that, that you can get the financial answer. And in this case, the financial answer is unless you have wildly optimistic views on continued price appreciation, yeah. you're going to be better off renting. And if you assume some sort of like relatively moderate level of uh, price inflation, you're looking that over the course of the next 10 years, that's going to cost you like a hundred grand. Yeah. 
to buy it versus rent it, just to live in the same place. Okay. And so then you can start to bring in the non-financial factors because a lot of times people skip to the non-financial factors and go, oh, I have pride of ownership. It's really important to me to own my house, to have yeah. my own space. Um, you know, as much as I don't like living with my parents, I don't want to live with, under landlord's roof either, which again, if you've ever lived out on your own, most landlords are pretty good and you'll never see them except for like the once a year that you renew your lease. Yeah. Well, and it <laughs> or becomes a thing breaks. too. The, the nice thing, if you end up with a landlord that you really don't connect with, you're not, you can leave. You can leave. That's the advantage. It's just like yeah. there, there may be terrible landlords out there that you would hate to live under their roof. And you can leave and find a different place. That is your yeah. right. You owe them nothing except for the lease that you signed. But there's flexibility there. Yeah. So people say, you know, I've got pride of ownership, therefore yeah. house. But I mean, you really can't skip that step because, you know, I could have pride of ownership of a Ferrari. It doesn't mean it fits my budget. Like I really can't afford to have a Ferrari as my daily driver. I drive a Prius and that is... <laughs> Plenty of pride of ownership for me and about as much car as I can afford in my budget. It's, know, I guess the, the difference... Just because I'd enjoy it more doesn't mean I can justify spending that much money. And so when you lay it out in a rent versus buy calculator, you see financially what the difference is. Then you can say, well, you know, is my pride worth totally. 10 grand a year? Totally. And I think that yeah. that's, that's like, it's, so, it's always really good to kind of quantify the non-quantifiable like you can't put a mm -hmm. price on pride of ownership but you can say is it worth this you can put a yes, comparative exactly. you can say i don't know what it's worth but would it be worth ten thousand dollars a year it's it's like car i don't know if it's art or i don't know exactly if it's good or not but this i like or this i don't like right well, and and it really when you have to put like man this is the always funny thing with art because people love art but then you ask, will you pay for art? And then you realize that <laughs> people love it a lot. Or if they're just like, well, like, I like that you're doing it over there. It's like, <laughs> if you love yeah. art, will you buy a $1,500 subscription to this thing? Mm, no. <laughs> but the interesting thing when you're, you're talking about like a car parallel, and I totally get that. But the little bit of the problem with the idea of saying, <clears throat> I want the pride of ownership over my over my place to live is it the the barrier to entry there if you're in a community where you're not willing to move to a to a much lower thing we can talk about that at some point too but like there's you know there's kind of there's no way to get the prius versus ferrari version unless you consider like if you're really limiting yourself to saying pride of ownership pride of i can knock that wall over in my house and there's nobody that can come sue me for it you know like you could say that i want ownership over my own space and you can do that in a bunch of different ways even if you're renting you can kind of become a more serious renter but like there isn't quite that like way that you can say the you know the barrier to entry just seems larger it's like i want pride of ownership but i can't get it in this range i can only get it here and that's frustrating for yeah. people that have that as a priority. Yeah. Uh, but that's it's it's a sad too. world that we live in. And, and, no. and you know, I, I'm very open at calling it, it's a housing bubble. I'll, I'll put the name on it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but that's the reality of living in a housing yeah. bubble. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that's interesting 
because people are always people are crazy in this market right now, especially when you talk about Toronto. That's an excellent adjective. But but they are because it's just like it, they've seen the twenty percent growth and they're just like, and this is I talk to friends all the time who are like, people are worried. Even they're worried that they're going to get shut out forever. So that yeah. and and it's this like it's that desperation can add even more fuel to this idea of ignoring. It's like how in. In Toronto, and I'm sure in Vancouver too, when you're when you're buying a place, that they're waiving all these things that used to be home inspections, all these normal kind of prudence measures that you used to do to make sure you're getting good assets. They don't talk about that anymore, and so mm-hmm. it's people are doing that mentally. Like you don't have the time to sit down and think about buying an asset anymore. Because like, well, what if next week it goes up another ten percent, and you'll never be able to afford it? And it even if it goes down a little bit, you'll be shut out of the market forever. And you want to be like they've got you a little bit by by the short and curlies there because it's yeah. like what am i supposed to do you you come to me and you're like do you want to own you're like well i don't know do you want to own ever you're like well prop maybe i well then give me all the money all the time and work it out later because we're going to shut you out of the market you know that's scary and it doesn't yeah. make a rational brain work well and your rational brain works far better than most and so this is why we lean on you for ration <laughs> well it's extremely difficult because it's it's housing bubbles are slow and people like yeah. you can look back at a chart and you say oh there's the 1989 Toronto housing bubble look it went up for a couple of years and then it crashed for a couple of years and bottomed out and very very slowly recovered yeah and you, you know whatever it was like seven years start to finish seven years is a long time when you're living and in this it? one is slower yeah so it's been at least nine years since we first crossed the point where renting was a little bit better than buying and it's just gotten worse and worse and worse ever since then and it's been about five years that lots of people have started to notice that and speak up about it hmm. uh, in in toronto so that's a long time for someone to say okay yeah maybe i'll buy into this renting thing and then still not have prices correct and still not have prices correct and have it just get more and more expensive and then it starts to look like it will never come back and then there's there's two basic responses to that um one is well eventually yeah it's gonna come back because trees don't go to the sky um you know as much as people like to say toronto's the next tokyo or new york i mean really flip that on its head and say is new york the next toronto and you go that's that's a ridiculous comparison like toronto is nothing like new york okay it's a city it has a subway sort of and Mm. property prices are going up but it's really like (laughs) it's hard to make the case that toronto that you know toronto prices should be to the level that New York prices yeah. are, which is really all people have left to justify prices continuing to go up any further from here because yeah. um, there's no other reason. Toronto incomes don't support it. Toronto rents don't support it. Um, it's largely just the madness of crowds, as they call it. And the other uh, approach, the other response to that fear of missing out is, so what if you do? Ah, yes. It, renting forever is it, is it really that bad or getting the fuck out? Is it really <laughs> that bad? Like yeah. if, if Toronto gets to the point where a house that's already one and a half million becomes 2 million or 3 million, 
like at some point it just doesn't matter anymore it's just yeah i'm never gonna own so what i can still make a life here as a renter or i can sort of take my chips take my kid take my car go to some other city yeah and make a life there because you know charlottetown halifax yeah you know, London, Ontario, they're not going to be the next New York's, even if Toronto does, by some miracle, become it. Yeah. Well, and there's something to learn, too, about people that live in those other huge cities, it, it, that they're full of renters. You go to yeah. Paris, you go to New York, you go to, I don't know about Tokyo, I assume with Tokyo, because it's that's the state of these cities, is that lots of people throughout their lives rent. And the kind of culture builds up around that. It's just, it's, it's totally fine, but it is, you know, even Tokyo becoming Tokyo went through a real estate bubble. Exactly. That's, that's really, but okay. So when you were kind of talking, and this is always something that I mean to ask you for like a long time, because it's, whenever we talk about real estate, we get caught in the exceptionalism and the insanity of the Toronto slash Vancouver bubble. One, because we live in Toronto and because it's really immediate, but also just because it's crazy. And so it's yeah. just, it's really interesting to talk about, but within this rent versus buy thing, we talked about the idea of like, I think you said it's been nine years since the kind of rent kind of clicked over where it being worth it to buy. So can we talk a little bit about um, just like the idea of like the normal situation that still exists in lots of communities where it's like, this is where renting is good. And then at a certain point it hits a kind of, plateau does that is that related to your income is that related to your life stage where buying becomes a better deal you know like how Um, would normal people think of it that that or people that toronto in 20 years yeah so it's not so much related to you it's more a function of the market okay Uh, so when it comes to you the biggest thing that you're going to put into this comparison uh how this is going to work is how long you're going to be there because there's huge transaction costs to real estate it costs a ton of money like if you look at uh five percent realtor commission plus a couple percent land transfer tax plus a couple thousand dollars for your lawyer your notary your home inspector if you're even doing that these days and uh moving truck which well if you're a renter and you move you have to pay for that anyway with those extra costs just of being an owner i mean that's in some cases several years worth of paying for rent just in the transaction costs. Yeah. Um, so that's one area where your situation is going to really may uh, have a uh, part to play in the comparison. And so for okay. my own life, you know, like I'm not a perma bear. I've been a bear on real estate for a long time. I'm not a perma bear. I moved to London in 2003 when I moved out of my parents' place and my dad and I looked at places and it did at the time make sense to buy and the only reason we didn't was a because I couldn't do it on my own. I would need my dad's help. Yeah, and he was at the time willing to potentially help me with that. Um, but I was going to London originally for a master's program, which was going to nominally be two years. Yeah. If you go and you buy a place and then you move back to Toronto two years later, you're just hosed on the fees. Yeah, and so even if I was going to live there for a longer time, it would make sense to buy for yeah. two years. It didn't. Now, I ended up living in London for 10. So (laughs) if I had bought in 2003, I would have been doing okay because I did my master's. It ended up taking three years instead of two. I did my PhD. I did my postdoc. Yeah. 
all of that in London. So okay. it might have made sense at that time then to have bought right away in 2003. So what are the factors that you looked at that made it worth it? Is it the, It's the same thing kind of in the that we were talking about before at the beginning, but kind of how does that, yeah. how does that lay out? It's basically the, the biggest thing is, or the quickest math is just to take the price to rent ratio. Okay. So if you take the rent, the monthly rent, and you take the price, which is the price, and you divide the two, and then that okay. gives you a number. So if you put the bigger number on top, you get a nice positive number rather than all these weird fractions. So if you take the price and you divide it by the rent and it's like 10, that's super unrealistic, okay? But let's say that. So let's say that you could buy a place for $10,000 and the monthly rent is $1,000 a month. You are not going to have to pull out a calculator to figure out that it is not going to take very much for you to be better off buying that place. But I have a calculator rent. ready. Yeah. <laughs> you made the math too simple. I was so ready. Okay, perfect. Okay. Yes. So, so way over on one end of the spectrum, you have really, really low rent-to-buy ratios. Okay. And you know the buying is going to be better in that case okay and then at the other end let's say that there was a place that cost a million dollars yeah okay but you could rent it for a thousand dollars a month who knows what crazy landlord is going to give it to yeah, you yeah that's for that. insane you could rent it for a thousand dollars a month or buy it for a million i yeah. mean you could stick your million dollars in a savings account and come up with enough money yeah in even these low interest rate days uh, to pay that kind of rent, let alone also paying the property taxes and whatnot on a million dollar place. Totally. So that's a thousand to one price to rent. So, you know, up there, renting definitely makes sense. Like it doesn't take a whole lot of math comparison. Yeah. Down here, buying definitely makes sense. And so somewhere in between is the crossover point. And that's where you need to do a little bit of math to find the crossover point. And it depends on assumptions. Okay. Depends on a lot of assumptions. So that's where um, some people such as myself got into a little bit of trouble calling it a bubble too early okay. as it were because uh, interest rates crashed like from you know a typical mortgage was five or six percent uh, back in the ye old 2007-2008 days yeah and then 2009 mortgages were three and a half percent and then they went down to three percent and yeah. then two and a half percent and if you had assumed that you know, you want to be prudent and provide some margin for rates to go back up. If you had assumed, you know, four, five, six percent in your calculation of rent versus buy, you would have found that you needed a lower price for it to make sense. Whereas if you had, for some reason, which seemed insane at the time, but ended up being correct, assumed that mortgage rates at three and a half percent would stay at three and a half percent and even go lower, then you could pay more and still have it come out making sense yeah okay so that's where you know that that exact crossover point is going to move depending on just that's just one example of your assumption yeah um and so there's a lot of assumptions that are going to go into that uh i think a good rule of thumb is somewhere around 200 times maybe 225 is about where that crossover point is okay so just and so if you pull some... your calculator out and you look at 3600 uh sorry one one point five million. Yeah, one point five million. Thirty six hundred uh, per month, which is what we're seeing in Toronto right now. So, and then I divide those two. The yeah, one point five is at the top, divided by thirty six hundred. Yeah, so it's one point five million. So you know, like fifteen hundred divided by three point six yeah. if we're going to the thousands. 
Um, that's 416 times. Like Okay, so that's way over that mark that's of way over, like so much that even if you make a, you have to make really wild assumptions for that to make sense. For that to make sense. Yeah. Like so that's, it growing 20% every year and like craziness exactly. and interest rates staying low and all of that. Yeah. Now, if interest rates do stay low and if prices do grow by 20% a year, I don't think that's a safe and reasonable assumption to be making when you're talking about the biggest expense you're going to have in your life. Yeah. But if you want to go with that, then it does make sense to buy even at these prices in Toronto. But of course, that's the problem is it's the biggest expense you're going to get. This decision and getting it right is important. Yeah, that's kind of the biggest crux that follows. You need a place to live. This is going to be a big decision whether you decide to rent or buy. You're putting a big portion of your monthly annual lifetime cash flow towards your living situation. So thinking about it is worth taking the time to think about it. Yeah. And a large number of sacrifices have to be made if you end up buying overpriced housing. So if houses are, let's just say, 30% overvalued, yeah, okay. well, let's say that normally you would spend a third of your budget on housing and 10% saving for retirement. Yeah. Well, if you're spending 33% more on your housing because it's an inflated, crazy market and you're just got the fear of missing out, so you spend more than you otherwise would on housing, well, that's got to come from somewhere. Now you're instead of that 30%, you're at 39%. That's almost all of your retirement savings. Yeah. But John... Uh, unless you're cutting back elsewhere. What if my house is my retirement? <laughs> so that is actually a point that comes up a lot. It's A lot of people and feel that way. Downing amount for how weak a point it is, which is a house is a forced savings plan because when yeah. you're making that mortgage payment, part of that goes off towards paying off the principal so that at the end you end up with a paid off house. Yeah. And if you have trouble saving, then buying a house is a way to force savings. Yeah. Now, really, I really, really common argument. That if if you need the threat of homelessness to save, you need a money coach, not a realtor. So, <laughs> like, I'm not going to argue with you, but like, I believe in the power of cash flow more than I believe in the power of Harry Potter. And, uh, but no, as, as a homeowner, you have to save. Yeah. Not just by paying off the mortgage because you're going to have to repair the house at some point. Yeah. There are large upkeep costs to being an owner, and they're irregular upkeep costs. You, can, you don't just, in some cases, you can go to something like direct energy or, or energy and have some create a furnace production plan. So you just pay monthly fee, and then you don't even have to worry about the furnace breaking down. They'll yeah. come in and pay it. And maybe one day someone will come up with the equivalent for roofs and foundations. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you do need realistically to be able to save money as a homeowner, if nothing else for repairs, let alone that's for a, retirement. That's stuff. a really interesting thought. I really like that. That as kind of an argument to being like, my home is my forced savings program, being like, no, no, no. It should not be forcing you to save. You should be able to save as a requirement before taking on the risk of home ownership. Because the entire thing is is another kind of lessons in, in risk taking to be like, look, you're gonna have variable costs. Throughout the life of this home, whether it's a condo, which is smaller, you, you reduce the risk. But with your, whether it's a condo with your fridge and stove breaking or your a lifetime house. You're oh, gonna condos have, have special assessments. 
and you're going to have giant spikes at some point. So if you yeah. can't manage those spikes, they're going to be a huge detriment to your ability to, to live. Just live, let alone its effects on you, you know, putting money into, into later life planning. Yeah, I like that a lot. That idea that like, no, no, this shouldn't force you to save. You have to be able to save before you start. Well, yeah, and it? isn't that like, like in a classic housing kind of thing is like, the barrier to entry should be you have to save up a down payment. If you can't save up a down payment, then maybe housing home ownership isn't right for you simply because you're also going to have to keep saving. You're also like, you have to be able to manage that kind of thing, but people like to find ways to skip that. Yeah. And I mean, we've got government supported institutions to help circumvent that, that, you know, I feel agree with existing the way that they do but that is potentially a whole episode on its own Matt, it it uh, really is because it's like without kind of going down that tangent it's like you also have to risk like it, helping people um because this is one of the frustrations that you know mimi and i went through when we were kind of looking at buying property it's just the fact that like it's hard for people that have the right habits are prepared to just jump through the wealth hoops. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's hard to start with that. So helping the people that are prepared have thought it through, get to that stage. And I'm not trying to put myself in a noble group, but I know that there are group there are, there are always people that those kind of programs are like, yeah, that's perfect for you. But helping everybody just simplifying it to the point of being like, we want to help people get the money to buy a house because this is, this is what Canadians need and it's for their security. And you're like, well, we're making wide swaths of assumptions there, you know? Yeah. And I mean, where I see things like CMHE being very justified is in small communities because the rental stock doesn't exist to nearly the same extent that it does in big cities. And so if you want to move out of your parents' house, you have, almost no other choice than to buy a place. And if you can't save up while you're in your parents' place because you just got to get out or you got to move to one of these places for a job when you're a recent uh, grad or whatever and you don't have the savings yet, then it makes sense to have a program like this help you get in. And then on the flip side, the risk to the government is relatively minor because these places generally don't experience massive housing bubbles where a regular three-bedroom house ends up costing $1.5 million. No. Whereas in Toronto, I I argue against the necessity of it because you can always rent. Yeah. So nobody is, nobody is homeless because they can't get CMHC. They just can't buy as early as they'd like, Yeah. but nobody's homeless. But this is the, okay. This is the other kind of giant, the, the problem that we always are bringing up. And this idea of like pride of ownership is one thing, but this idea that owning a home is something that Canadians just want. This is something that's like, and maybe it's got to be in other countries as well, but it seems like as Canadians specifically, people feel like owning a home is a, is a stage that everybody has to go through. It's that same kind of like, you know, in the same way that there's the pressure or maybe that's fading a little bit to like get married, have kids, do these things. Getting a house is one of these steps that still is kind of really ingrained in societal kind of things. And so like, that's it. Even though it's like, it seems like a weird thing to toss out into the world when we've been talking about actual tangible, like, like formulas, numbers, this is how you think about it. 
this is just, it's such a, it's just, that's where it seems to come back to all the time. And so how do you have that discussion? How do you talk about, how do you talk, how do you talk up renting or down, I don't know, balance out the conversation a little bit. It's frustrating. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and it's very difficult because it is so ingrained. Like I've heard other people call it a cult and yeah. to some extent it kind of is like, it's just an automatic, not a logic answer. It's just, this is part of our culture is yeah. we go off, we get to a certain age and you buy a house and you're not really seen as an adult within the community unless you have accomplished that. It's really and true. It's amazing how, like, I, I can't remember if we were talking about this, and I'm sorry to interrupt after you, but it's like, if we were talking about this before, but, you know, Mimi and I feel that some way, too, and we're like, <clears throat> we're happy where we are, but when you talk to people and you're like, oh, yeah, we rent, and you kind of get this little, like, this little, like, twinge of shame, and you're like, I don't feel that. Why is this, why is this sparking up? Because it's like, you, you feel like at a certain point, and you get a little bit of an allowance for living in Toronto, people are like, oh, but, like, when you're talking to people outside of that community that might not understand that you're like, you're in your thirties. Why don't, why are you still renting? Why is that? Why is that? Shouldn't you, you seem to be capable of, of doing more, doing better. Shouldn't you be doing better? Ugh. Yeah, no, it's hard. And, and these are the things that people have to balance off in, in the housing bubble. And it's really hard to uh, try to find that middle ground that's going to work for you. Um, like for me, I know that I tend to not care that much about what other people think <laughs> because I'm, again, that antisocial loser that doesn't want to share a wall with another human being if I can at all spend a little bit more money to avoid it. But also, um, you know, that that's, that's a mindset that I just sort of grew up with is that yeah the crowd is not always right just because it's the crowd and in a number of ways that was sort of drilled into me. And so it's something that um, I've become comfortable with in other ways, but it is a really tough thing to do to go against your culture, against your friends and family to do something that's even just a tiny bit different. Totally. So one thing that I find really helps is for the most part, people aren't looking at your mortgage statement or your rent checks. So if you're living the lifestyle that they expect you to live yeah. they might not even know or care or ask that you know are you renting or buying that place it's just here's the house that i live in totally so they expect you to live in a certain style of house or condo or yeah. um you know detached house or or semi-detached whatever yeah um and then to procreate and as long as you're doing that that you don't really get a whole lot of social stigma and yeah. it's kind of funny that every now and then, like sometimes I'm really big, like, I rent this place. It's a yeah. great place. I live here and I rent it. Did you know that you can rent a house? Because <laughs> I'm trying to like help people understand that, yes, you can rent detached houses and nice ones too. Not totally. just like ones that are on the verge of being torn down to be replaced that are yeah. you know, just getting their last year or two of rent checks. Like, <laughs> sometimes they're nice places that you can sign like five-year leases on and live there for a long time and totally. raise kids there and all that. So you you live there and you raise kids and then – you know, nobody gives you any kind of weird looks, but every now and then the, you can see that they have assumed that you've bought the place because totally. you'll like have friends over for dinner and they're like, you know, you should really knock this wall down. And I'm like, no, my landlord would not mm. be cool with that. <laughs> or, you know, maybe, maybe I'll check with my landlord because <laughs> maybe they want this wall knocked down, in which case, yeah, I might as well spend a weekend doing it. And, and, uh, you're totally yeah. right. I, 
I bet most people assume that you that you own your place because it's like it's a great place in a great neighborhood, and it's just like you just assume that because you don't think about renting detached houses. And also because ninety five percent of the other houses in this neighborhood are yeah owned. Yeah, I mean I've I've seen you know two or three on the block have gone up for rent over the last couple of years. So I know that it's somewhere around that level of, you know, 5%, maybe, maybe 10% of the neighborhood is rented. But um, yeah, most of them are. That's one other thing too, that's worth kind of just, you mentioned it in passing, but the idea of a long-term lease, the idea of a five-year lease, the idea of a longer-term lease, the idea that leases are negotiable with your landlord. That's something that I, until you mentioned it, I think last fall, I was like, Oh, right. Leases can be longer than a year. And it does fill in a little bit of the gap because one of the perhaps legitimate ideas is that with renting, you don't have the stability that you have on your own. You know, all of a sudden, an uh, owner could call you up and be like, look, my cousin is moving in. You have to move out. And there's protections for that. But you also are a little bit at their whim. It happened just a couple of friends of mine. They sold the build. Their landlord sold the building. They have to leave. It, it just it can be really. Yeah, that can be tough. So it's. It's it. There are solutions for gaining that, stability within a rented community too. Yeah, that that's absolutely right, the, the, and it extends in so many different directions. So I mean, just to sort of circle back to the beginning of the point, there are trade offs that are not financial. Yeah. Um, and part of that is renting is going to be a little bit less secure, a little bit constrained in some ways that owning isn't, and some people are going to be uncomfortable with that. To some extent, you look at a market like Toronto and you say, well, suck it up, buttercup. Like that is the life that that's the reality of life. Times are tough and, you know, it's two bad choices. This is the less bad choice. Yeah. Um, So you can try to mitigate it in some ways. Yeah. So um, one way is with a longer lease. So in Ontario, the rule of the land is that a tenant has security of tenancy, and if they're in a place that was built and occupied before 1991, they also have rent control. So you move in, you negotiate the rent with the landlord at whatever the market rate is, and then after that, the government will say how much the maximum rent can go up each year. Yeah. Um, you can also negotiate that directly with the landlord. So the typical thing is to have a one-year lease, and then after that, the rent goes up by whatever the government says, unless the landlord decides to not raise it by that much, which yeah. actually does happen because landlords want to incentivize good tenants to stay because a good landlord wants a good tenant. Yeah. Yes. um, Not every, not all landlords are going to be in there trying to evict you, Uh, but it does happen. I had a friend who got evicted from his place um, because a new family moved in as landlords. Uh, They kept him on for another year or so. And then they had a kid and then they said, Oh, well now we want our basement apartment back to Mm. be just a basement. Yeah. And so then he got evicted. Now, the thing is, getting evicted for whatever reason, uh, because the landlord wants to take over the space or whatever, that's a risk as a, as a renter that you're going to take. You can mitigate it a bit. You can stretch it out so that instead of just having one year of guaranteed tenancy, you can make it longer, two or three or four or five years, depending on whatever you and the landlord can come to an agreement on on the lease. And usually, again, good landlords want good tenants for a long time. Yeah, That's usually not a hard sell for a landlord if you're... No tenant um at least not in my experience but no not if you've kind of proved like if you already proved your relationship coming in and asking for a five-year lease off the top when you don't know each other 
yeah. probably isn't going to work. But if you've been but, there for a year, I mean, it might. If you screen well, if you yeah, got you know true. money up front and um, good jobs and good reference yeah. letters and all that stuff, and you're sort of coming yeah. in and being like, "Look, I have one of these little things, and it's really squirmy, and I don't want to have to move all of its toys again. Can I have a five year lease?" You know, that that might also help. So that, that's a risk as yeah. a, as a tenant, the risk that you're going to get evicted. But it's only happened to one person in my circle of acquaintances who rent and he was there for seven years before it happened. Yeah. So it's a risk. It's relatively unlikely. It gets played up a lot in the media, but yeah, I don't think it's really as likely as people say it is. And even then it's a risk of inconvenience. Yeah. It sucks having to pack up all your stuff on 60 or 90 days notice. Yeah find a new place, you know, go shopping around for another place. It, it really is just not nice. But again, if I can save a hundred thousand dollars over 10 years, yeah. I'll take that risk every time. It's also the flip side of flexibility. Like yeah. you play up that side, but yes. it also is the fact that like, if you get a new job across the city, if you just want to like if you win a small lottery and you want to travel for a year, you can just leave and you don't have to pay. Like, like depending on where you are in your lease, but like you can also sublet, like there's a lot of options for you. And yeah, so and, yeah. and that's the other thing is you get a long lease to protect you. The landlord has some protections in that lease because basically if you leave, you have to find another tenant willing yeah. to pay at least as much as you were yeah. that the landlord accepts, yeah. reasonably accepts, yeah. which is not super hard. So, I mean, you might leave and then your five-year lease, you might have to pay an extra couple of months rent. Yeah. Again, compared to the transaction cost of owning, if you had to leave for another job or whatever, that's not very much. It's huge. And the inconvenience of having to leave your own house is like not only just the financial cost, but like that's a huge thing to try to sell and try to do all these kind of things. Yeah. And it's like, there is, it's a bigger, there's always a flip side to all these things. There's a strength and yeah. a weakness. And it's just like, this is life. But it's yeah. it's easy to get sucked into the because the, the stories do suck. You know, like and then that person got evicted and the landlord was terrible. And like, of course, those are the stories that we hear. It sucks yeah. to hear stories about terrible people, but that doesn't mean that most people aren't pretty decent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, the other thing that we often hear is that well, renting is less flexible. I've even heard quite often, surprising um, that people say, "Oh, well, I want to paint the walls and hang pictures," like. Well, paint the walls and hang pictures. Like this is something you can do as a tenant. You can yeah. paint the walls and hang pictures. That's Might. totally fine. The only thing is that you either have to get permission from the landlord to leave it that way or paint it back to the way yeah. that you found it when you leave. That, yeah. That's all. So, you know, this is not a real requirement. And then it's like, well, if I want to knock down a wall, what do I do? Yeah. So then as a tenant, you have, you know, the sort of two responses to that is that most of the time when people are knocking down walls when they buy a place, it's right at the beginning. So you just find a place as a tenant that you like as it is, <laughs> and then you go live there. And then you don't have to knock down any walls. You don't have to live in a construction zone for eight months that you originally thought was only going to be three and all that stuff. You and just if, And if you live there. a place for a year and you're like, you know what? I hate that this kitchen isn't bigger. You go find a place with a bigger kitchen. Yes. You don't have Again, to change have this to look place. for a couple of months to find one, especially if you're looking for a detached house, because they are rarer than condos. Yes. So the search might take a little bit longer, but eventually you'll find the places for you. And then also, if you do really want to renovate, there are some uh, 
landlords who will let you renovate. Yeah. If you want to sign a five or 10 year lease and then build in the provisions that, you know, the renovation is going to cost this much, the landlord will provide materials, the tenant will provide labor or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you want to do to make that work. Maybe the tenant uh, will pay the uh, lease rate that the unimproved property would normally have got, which is what the landlord is going to get anyway if you, the creative tenant, isn't coming in. Yeah, totally. And then you go and you pay for the renovation, so then you get to live in the renovations just for the cost of whatever it put in, which you would have done anyway if you were an owner, and then have the lower cost of whatever the dump that you were going to rent totally. uh, would have costed. Then, I mean, that's sort of win-win. And then when you eventually leave, the landlord has this nicely renovated place, so they yeah. get to bump the rent on the next tenant. And then in the meantime, you know, for five, seven, ten years, you get to enjoy that nicely renovated, personalized space for you. I mean, again, these are much rarer than renovating your own house as an owner, but it's not impossible. But only rare because we don't talk about them and it's probably not discussed even between a landlord and a tenant. Exactly. Because this, what you're talking about right now, right at the beginning when we were talking about the idea of like what's in between these two life stages or what's in between these two options. Let's take the life stage out of the, out of the equation. This is what's in between. Like it is a spectrum. And so what you can say is like, you know, at the end of renting, at the, the spectrum over here is like pure, just normal renting, which you always think about. And over here is complete ownership. There is this, this area where it's more secure more stable you have a different kind of relationship with your landlord and you can take more ownership over the space and you can create and you know yes it might be harder to find a place in a landlord but it's also hard to find a, a piece of property that you really like this is just it's a Especially different kind of Toronto market exactly so it's just like recognizing options and and the thing the biggest takeaway that both I'm taking and kind of would want to like lay out is like the idea of Looking at the prices, writing down all these intangible things that you really feel, whether they're rational or irrational, whatever you're feeling, that you're like, I really want this. And, but finding some way to put a price on it, whether it's one of the ways that you've talked about already and saying, are these things worth this amount of money? You know, $100,000 in 10 years. Is this worth pride of ownership? Is this worth really being able to knock down a wall at a whim? You know, is it worth these things that I'm putting value? Is it worth that kind of not feeling a twinge of shame that you don't really even agree with and probably would disappear in five seconds? Like that's a, would you like, that's a decent place to at least start making a more deliberate decision than I think. And and try to really carefully define what it is that you want. Because again, a lot of people jump, they say they, they really want to live in a detached house and raise a kid. And so they jump from, I really want to live in a detached house and raise a kid and then start to pursue mm-hmm. what all the various ways of making that happen are, jump from that to, well, I'm going to buy. So is that step zero? Is step zero really defining what you want and exploring the different options, like really trying to explore yeah. the different options of how you can get that and only not making buy the only option before kind That's of right. step yeah. don't, one of- don't jump. Yeah, yeah. You're skipping steps if you go straight to, okay, let me find the house that I'm going to buy. And well, no, find- if you want to live in a house, find what you might be able to live in and what the various options are. If you don't live in a city like Toronto, if you live in Montreal or Halifax, you yeah. might look at the rental options and go, well, I'm surprised there are rental options for detached houses, but they're just as expensive yeah. as owning or maybe yeah. even more expensive than owning. So, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and go. If you live in Toronto or Vancouver, or maybe even Calgary or Edmonton, you might go, ooh, 
this is actually a better option financially and then you think about the other risks that you're taking on and some of the intangibles and well maybe actually it's better option in a large number of ways yeah yeah i like it i like it step zero you have to live somewhere decide what kind of living situation you want and then start getting creative about how you can make that happen that's all for our conversation today if you've got any rent versus buy questions feel free to send us a note here at because money if you like hearing us chat about money why not tell a friend heck tell 10 friends or even more i promise if you tell 10 friends to listen maybe we'll bring sandy back for the next next episode as always thanks so much for listening and have yourself a great week goodbye Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Because Money is a labor of love and involved no ads or other sponsorship. Be sure to click the like or subscribe button where you downloaded this from, as we'll help other listeners find the podcast and raise our profile, which in turn makes it easier to book guests. Please visit becausemoney.ca for show notes and related links.